Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists, and I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. So here's my first uh, audience response question. Which of the following is a true statement? A, warfarin is the only anticoagulant in the top 10 drugs to cause emergency de department visits due to adverse events. B, rivaroxaban is the only direct oral anticoagulant in the top 10 drugs to cause emergency department visits due to adverse events. C, anticoagulants cause 46.9% of all emergency department visits due to adverse drug events. Or D, anticoagulants are responsible for roughly 50% of all ADEs or adverse drug events that result in hospital admission. And in this case, the correct answer is letter D. And as you're going to see on this next slide, this, this, uh, these questions is directly taken from the, uh, the Shahab study, which analyzed adverse drug events in visits to the emergency department. And what they found in this particular analysis that anticoagulants antibiotics and diabetes agents were estimated to cause 46.9% of all emergency department visits due to adverse drug events. 17.6% of those emergency department visits were due to anticoagulants alone. Warfarin was actually found to be the leading cause of emergency department visits in the elderly. Rivaroxaban was the fifth leading cause of emergency department visits in the elderly. Dabigatran was the 10th leading cause of emergency department visits in the elderly, and enoxaparin was the 13th leading cause of emergency department's visits in the elderly. All in all, anticoagulants were responsible in this particular analysis for roughly 50% of all adverse drug events that result in hospital admission. So this, uh, this study, plus other work that's been reported in the patient safety literature and certainly organizations such as the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, has led to an updating of the National Patient Safety Goal. But before we, I get into that, I want to talk just briefly about the history of the National Patient Safety Goal. The National Patient Safety Goal for anticoagulation began as being called National Patient Safety Goal 3E in 2008, which was planned to be phased in over the course of a year. The initial goal was controversial, actually, because it required a defined anticoagulation management uh, program, but that was actually dropped when the final goal that was implemented July 1st, 2009 was implemented. And they went to basically saying that if you met all the standards of the goal, you actually have an anticoagulation program was the rationale. And they also retitled the goal to 03.05.01. The only, it only applied and in, in including sub, subsequent iterations and current, including the current, when there's therapeutic levels of anticoagulation that are expected and treatment is not short term. And at that time, the goal only applied to heparin, low molecular weight heparin and warfarin. And there really was very little change of this goal until the year 2019. So what led to the Joint Commission updating this goal? Well, one, we saw rising adverse drug effects uh, events with the direct oral anticoagulants. Note the original goal was written before the direct oral anticoagulants were on the market. 
Further, there's a lot of talk about the emergence of anticoagulation and antithrombotic stewardship teams and some of the different work and roles that they do. Uh, I think that had an influence on this as well. Further, there was a national action plan for adverse uh, drug event prevention from the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion from the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, I think people increasingly recognize the complexity and challenges of anticoagulation reversal. We've had a lot of change and innovation in that marketplace as well since the original goals uh, were approved. Uh, the challenges of perioperative management, I think, have been increasingly uh, more, more well recognized. And there's been a couple really notable trials that have happened since the original goals with the BRIDGE trial and in the PAUSE study. There's also a, a, lot of, a lot of work done in understanding what lab tests mean in the direct oral anticoagulant era, because it doesn't, they don't necessarily mean the same thing anymore. They might mean that some of the same things to the individual drugs they've classically been used for, but you also have to understand what's going on with the new agents as well when they happen to be checked. And then also the need to educate DOAC patients. Again, that was not in the, in the old goals, and that's obviously a clear need because those patients need all the same education that a warfarin patient does, except you don't need to talk about green leafy vegetables and INR monitoring. So let's talk about what the actual changes are to the elements or performance. So the first, uh, the hospital use approved protocols and evidence-based practice guidelines for initiation and maintenance of anticoagulant therapy that addresses medication selection, dosing, including adjustments for age and liver or renal function, drug-drug, drug-food interactions, other factors as applicable. So what are some things you could do to comply with this goal? Well, you could look at approving direct oral anticoagulant guidelines for each medication uh, that cover a lot of these different topics. Uh, manage an oversight of direct oral anticoagulant therapy in both the DOA in the hospital and the outpatient anticoagulation clinic. You can look at including the medications on disease-based order sets to standardize their use and dosing. You also could look at de defaulting rivaroxaban 15 and 20 milligram doses to meal times with administration instructions to give with food and make sure that's included in your educational instructions. And again, I'm just giving some ideas on how to comply with these goals. So let me give you some commentary and some issues that I regularly see, uh, see occur in practice that uh, are things that you should consider uh, covering in your guidelines. Uh, how to handle deterioration of renal and hepatic function leading to dosing and medication changes. How to handle different drug interactions. A common one we run into, people have had strokes when they're put on concurrent inducing medications. It seems like we do a good job of maybe catching some of the inhibitors, but we run into issues with seeing such, such as some of the anti-seizure medications, uh, primidone, et cetera. Forgetting to reorder direct oral anticoagulants when patients stabilized and, and, uh, and, and are going home. Uh, they, they, it seems like we tend to remember warfarin, but direct oral anticoagulants are maybe harder to remember. Patients not restarting warfarin direct oral anticoagulants at appropriate times after bleeding events. Uh, you know, I'll see even sometimes plans being put in place, but then they're never executed, particularly in the ambulatory setting. Uh, inappropriate uh, concurrent antiplatelet therapy. If I had a nickel for every patient that doesn't need to be on aspirin, that's on aspirin, I'd be a rich man. And that's the, some of the things that should be addressed. Lack of dose adjustment after six months of secondary venous thromboembolism prevention for the direct oral anticoagulants. Both the Pixaban and Rivaroxaban for most patients likely should have their dose stepped down. Direct oral anticoagulant patients with new bariatric surgery. We still have very little data in that arena. So what have you done to address that? You know, it's a controversial topic. I can't tell you exactly what you should do, but you should certainly look at it at your institution.
and a lack of knowledge of regarding appropriate dose of Rivarox, uh, appropriate use of Rivarox meant two and a half milligrams. Sometimes you'll see people thinking that they meant to uh, Pixaban two and a half milligrams twice daily when they didn't. They intended the two and a half dose for peripheral arterial disease or stable CAD. Another change in elements of performance is the hospital uses approved protocols and evidence-based practice guidelines for reversal of anticoagulation and management of bleeding events related to each anticoagulant medication. So consider developing reversal guidelines along uh, with order sets that follows guidelines that are specific for the agent that needs to be reversed. Also, make sure you've trained and, and encouraged your emergency department pharmacists and floor anticoagulation pharmacists to be regularly engaged with anticoagulation reversal processes. That's something that our pharmacists are regularly engaged with here. And we run into issues. Just a recent issue that we had at our hospital is we had a patient that needed a semi-urgent, not an urgent, but a semi-urgent uh, uh, coronary artery bypass surgery. So somebody they couldn't discharge home after they were cathed. Uh, but yet needed it, say, the next morning. Um, that patient had been on Rivaroxban, uh, hadn't taken the dose for like 36 hours, still had good kidney function. Uh, INR happened to be drawn, and it was 1.8, and the CT surgeon wanted to give the patient uh, a prothrombin complex concentrate. Well, thankfully, our pharmacist inter uh, intervened on that and said that's probably likely unnecessary and that the drug should clear by the morning, which it did. Another change to the elements of performance is the hospital uses approved protocols and evidence-based practice guidelines for perioperative management of all patients on oral anticoagulants. Perioperative management may address the use of bridging medications, timing and stopping of an anticoagulant, and timing dose uh, for restarting an anticoagulant. So again, consider uh, developing perioperative guidelines for warfarin and direct oral anticoagulants. Make sure you screen your ambulatory patients on warfarin or DOAX for invasive procedures. That's something you can do if they're having surgeries done at your, at your health system. Develop individualized perioperative anticoagulation management plans for your ambulatory patients. I still run into outpatient uh, classic warfarin clinics that aren't taking this next step in preparing these types of care plans. Use inpatient pharmacists to assure anticoagulation is restarted at appropriate times after the surgical procedure. So they're not jumping the gun and restarting a direct oral anticoagulant at a full dose after high bleeding risk procedure in the first, you know, 24 to 48 hours. That can often be a mistake. And, and also making sure that discharge anticoagulation orders are correct for what was intended for the perioperative plan, particularly in situations where bridging might be being utilized. Next element of performance that we're going to cover that's been updated is the hospital has a written policy addressing the need for baseline and ongoing laboratory tests to monitor and adjust anticoagulant therapy. For patients receiving warfarin therapy, Use a current INR to adjust, uh, monitor and adjust therapy. For patients with direct oral anticoagulants, follow evidence-based practice guidelines rega regarding the need for laboratory testing. This is a this is a, uh, a element of performance where I still have questions that come up from people that think that this somehow required them to check, say, direct oral anticoagulant levels or INRs or something with the direct oral anticoagulants. And that's not what this element of performance is looking for. They're asking you to make sure that you have adequately assessed, you know, if, if what labs are needed 
to assess what your dose is for your for your direct oral anticoagulant. So a lot of times it's it's a current assessment of renal function for a hospitalized patient. And then as the outpatient setting goes, you really have to look at how often do you need to address uh, serum creatinine to being rechecked. You know, so you might have a more unstable patient or maybe it needs to be at least every three months, uh, but you could have very stable patients and it may be six month or a year uh, types of reassessments of renal function are just, are, are certainly adequate, but you need to define this at least some minimum standards at your health systems. So the one thing I recommend to folks, a lot of people from the original national patient safety goals in the inpatient setting had a low molecular weight heparin policy they developed with serum creatinine assessment, et cetera. A lot of times you can combine that and expand it to include direct oral anticoagulants. Another element of performance that's changed is the hospital addresses anticoagulation practices through the following, establishes a process to identify, respond to, and report adverse drug events, including adverse drug event outcomes, and evaluation of anticoagulation safety practices, taking actions to improve safety practices, and measuring the effectiveness of those actions in a time frame determined by the hospital. So you really need to achieve this goal. You need to really make sure that your anticoagulation adverse drug events, both overt errors, but also people that are having bleeding and thrombosis events are being evaluated regularly. And that probably is optimally done by say your medication safety teams, or if you have a medication safety pharmacist available uh, for possible system uh, improvements, but you also may need your more clinical side of your anticoagulation pharmacist looking at some of the adverse drug events as well. Uh, so make sure you have a reporting system for bleeding and thrombosis events to assure they are evaluated for care improvement opportunities. And what I recommend uh, is, is reporting those, those events to medication safety subcommittees or maybe an anticoagulation or antithrombotic subcommittee or a stewardship team to make sure that those that are getting regularly evaluated. So what we do at our hospital if we have something that's reported as an error and it's uh, definitely some system uh, process types of issues, those go to our medication safety subcommittees. It, when we're looking at our all of our bleeding and thrombosis outcomes, those are evaluated by our anticoagulation subcommittee. And if we identify process issues or system changes that are needed as part of that, that goes back to our medication safety subcommittee, but also a lot of the things that we do end up going to peer review or for other educational reasons as well. The hospital provides education to patients and families specific to anticoagulant prescribed, including the following, adherence to medication dose and schedule, importance of follow-up, potential drug-drug, drug-food interactions, and potential for adverse drug reactions. So to achieve this goal, make sure that you've looked at your educational materials, make sure they include DOAC information. Sure, anticoagulation patient education covers DOACs and is provided whenever DOACs are ordered. Uh, standardize the after-visit summary or whatever your discharge instructions are called and make sure the anticoagulation wording and, and consider automating its addition. So can you make it so it's automatically added if the agents are, are utilized? Use pharmacists to educate patients prior to discharge if you have them available. And use ambul your ambulatory clinic to make sure all your uh, DOAC patients and warfarin patients have been adequately educated. So we must, in we must individualize that care. And I will tell you, even when we initially started in 2008 and 2009 to this, many were worried that warfarin needed to be dosed on a strict protocol basis, a strict uh, nomogram. Uh, thankfully, the Joint Commission did clarify that individualization of therapy to the patient and the use of guidelines are certainly appropriate. While the dosing of DOAX is generally more straightforward than the dosing of warfarin, boy, there are plenty of gray areas that will still arise. I, I mentioned the... Uh, 
I'd mentioned the bariatric surgery issue earlier. You could have morbid obesity types of issues. Um, there's plenty of issues or what to, what to do when they come in the hospital, acute kidney injury. So there's plenty of issues that still need to be addressed. And so we really need pharmacists collaborating with the providers they're working with to optimize care. That's how we're gonna best take care of that individual patient. So the key takeaways of my initial presentation here before I give way to Dr. Dagger is to, is to remind everybody that, that the advent of DOAC adverse drug events along with care challenges led to this national patient safety goal update. Aside from DOAC optimization, standardization of reversal therapy and peri-procedural management, are notable challenges that are now required that were not addressed by the previous National Patient Safety Goal. And finally, protocols and guidelines uh, need to allow for appropriate individualization of care. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content.